Howdy, I'm Paul Isaacoder, and this is Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore barriers to storytelling by writing one novel every month for 12 months. Please enjoy. My number one note to new writers is to focus up right away on the drama inherent in your story. To get to the point, quick, like what I'm doing now. A novel usually needs to hook anyone who reads within the first few sentences. Why? Because people are bored, people are lazy, people don't want to spend nine hours getting to the good part. That's why you start sitcom Parks and Rec on season two, that's why you read reviews and summaries and recommendations. Anything to avoid spending nine hours invested in a world of art that turns out to be nothing but a waste of nine hours. See, the longer you make somebody read before they get to the meat of what your story's about, the longer you risk losing them. But this isn't mercenary, this isn't about sacrificing your art for your readers. No, this is artistic integrity. The longer you wait to get to the point, the more you acknowledge that the point really isn't all that important. The more you focus on something that isn't your focus, the more you admit that your focus isn't worth focus. I couldn't possibly be more clear with my words, no. And if you think there are modern examples that prove my theory wrong, you're wrong. And it must feel bad to be so wrong. Sure, there are modern masterpieces that ignore this advice, but they're not any better for it. Also, often, the author is hooking you in the first few seconds without you realizing it. Here's how I open a few of my books. So, in the opening to Night of the Mayfly, I wanted to right away establish some major elements of the book. Number one, this narrator's semi-humorous voice. Number two, the setting and genre. Number three, the sense that the narrator is in over his head. Number four, the elements of time, conflict, poverty, and animal transformation. And number five, the what factor. Let's see if you can hear those elements. It was about 6 p.m. when two men in gray coats barged into my office, whereupon one turned into a rhinoceros. To answer your most pressing question, no, I don't have a secretary. These days, private investigators don't have the money for an office jockey who can halt walk-ins. We do have a one-up on our counterparts of yore, though, which is that we can turn into an animal. Everyone has one animal they can become. Just one. You don't get to choose. I just happened to get a mottled gray and black tomcat. The man in my office had happened to acquire a one-ton bulletproof goring machine. It was about that time that I was happy to have installed a kitty door behind my desk. Now you're probably asking yourself, what's the what factor? The what factor is a hook that keeps people reading, if only to figure out what's going on. It's usually pretty hard to get someone invested in a character, plot, or writing style on page number one. What gets us to stick around long enough to become interested, then? Often, curiosity. Well, how about the novel Miserable Company? Well, let's approach the book like a normal person would. You see the cover, and you read the back, which says the following. Eric is a human, and a child of destiny. That means he can pretty much do whatever he wants, and still win. This isn't a story about Eric, though. This is a story about a group of followers Eric's gained throughout the years. His emotionless golem, a bloodthirsty elf, and a depressed shapeshifter, all held together by a half-demon sorceress who's got an unrequited crush 
on the main character from her favorite series of novels who happens to be Eric. When two gremlins gum up the plot that leads to Eric's destiny, his company must accomplish three mighty deeds that will free their captive leader and restore him to his rightful throne. Or must they? This isn't a story about Eric. This is a story about his miserable company. All right, so that's the back of the cover. Um, in the beginning of Miserable Company, I thought I'd clue the reader in on the humor and the main conflict. So here's the opening page. As you have floated, invisible, behind two furry creatures known as gremlins. He'd been invisible for far too long. Three days, in fact. Hey, what took you so long? The black gremlin asked of the white one. Don't you know how long the dimensional rift has been open? Don't you know how long it takes to find a good dentist that doesn't scream when they see you? Well, it must have been three days. All Azure's life, which, as a demon of chaos, had been a long time. He'd been fighting a long battle against the forces of peace. It was only three days ago that he'd happened upon these keys to his damnation. Drifting invisibly through the strange new world, Azure felt more like a fart than a demon of chaos. He'd had about just as much impact. Eric and his pretentiously named Order were closer than ever to fulfilling the necessary prophecies, and he just spent three days in a completely different dimension. But oh, what enlightening days. Alright, so, however much you're told not to judge a book by its cover, you do. The front and back covers are the advertisement for what you find inside, and the opening lines of your book are an extension of this advertisement inside the universe of the book itself. Don't waste your first five pages exhaustively outlining your story, your characters, and your world. Start with a bang, a moment that changes everything that happens after that moment. I choose my openings to reflect the moment that dimensional shenanigans derail the winds of fate that have made the heroes so successful up until this point. That shows evil triumphant, and it shows that there's going to be conflict in this book. Another opening. This time, no music. I'm getting lazy. The news anchor on the television said that of the over 100 billion humans to ever die on this earth, we will have been the last. Then, making this proclamation of the significance that she and I shared, her body slumped over like a puppet with the hand pulled out. I looked down at my own body, and strangely enough, my body was looking back up at me. Alright, knowing nothing else about this book, not even its title, what would this opening tell you? Well, here's my take. The news anchor on the television, which locates the narrator in front of the TV, said that over the 100 billion human beings ever to die on this earth, we will have been among the last. So that implies almost every human is dead, and the will have implies that there's no hope. Then, making this proclamation of the significance that she and I shared, her body slumped over like a puppet with the hand pulled out. This so-called significance followed immediately by her death is almost comical timing. It gives a clue that the concept of the novel we'll be exploring is that life really isn't important. I looked down at my own body. Strangely enough, my body was looking back up at me. The narrator is outside their own body. They're dead. And yet, they're still going. It's the novel Ghost Town! But you don't need me to spell that out for you. Readers are smart, and they're able to come to their own conclusions. Not only that, but they like to be treated like the smarties they are. 
Listen, the whole fun of art is that meeting in the middle where the artists and the audience interpret one another to both emit and receive conclusions about the world and all its sensation. All right, here's the opening of the novel, Hollow. This is a test, Turner told himself. The divine spirits were looking over his shoulder, surely, wondering if he would resign himself to sleep. The divines wondered, surely, if a boy of sixteen years could work like a man of thirty from sunup to sundown and still find time to educate himself. I can, Turner told himself. This was the first day of harvest. They'd eaten sweet apples and unleavened bread, as even the bakers were out in the fields, slaving away. It was a good enough meal for the others, but Turner had seen what the Diaz ate. I want more, Turner thought. So I'll read, I'll better myself. The others can work this soil until the sky has swept a storm, but I'll rise, surely. All right, for the first book of Author's Dozen, I thought I'd write something basic. Uh, I made an archetypical adventure story. And there's no archetype more simple than this. The character wants something, struggles to get that something, and then the character is changed by the struggle and the something. That's it. And uh, for this simple archetype, there's a simple formula for setting it up. It's the I want song. The I want song is a popular type of song in Disney movies where a character sings about how they're unsatisfied with their current life and what they're searching for. Little Mermaid wants to be and free. Wish I could be part of that world. Well, that's a I wish song. But what about Mulan? Well, she's over here wondering. When will my reflection show who I am inside? See, if you want to give your character a push into the world, a reason to move and change, and get your audience to identify and root for them, well, give them what every human has, which is unfulfilled desires. Hollow is a novel about a boy who can't be who he wants to be due to low social status. He wants more, and like Princess Tatiana, he's... But I know exactly where I'm going. I'm getting closer and closer every day, and I'm almost there. I'm almost there. But, 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 just like her, fate swoops in and takes it all away. My I Want song, personally, would be I want more subscribers and ratings on the Authors Dozen podcast, so if you could please share the show. I know it's kind of cringy to like things, but you can share it on social media and rate it on iTunes. I'd be eternally grateful. I am doing a good project. And we're closing in on 3,000 downloads, and people are listening in Poland and Finland and Kazakhstan, apparently and all over the place, and I appreciate you guys, and I would love for more people to check it out. So please, give it a share. Please, please, please. All right, that's done. All right, here's the opening of the book, Siren Deep. With regard to the shell, sovereignty cannot afford to make a single mistake. Sovereignty, therefore, might resolve to make many. Sacrificing fleets would cost sovereignty much in reputation. From what's rumored to be beneath the shell, no cost is too high. Every ship we lose weakens our chances at victory. Not every ship, 
The problem, child. All right, there's the setup for my third Authors Dozen book, which opens with two people talking, no names, no locations, no context. They're talking about chasing something that is literally priceless. So priceless, in fact, that the opening page discusses sacrificing entire fleets and writing them off as mistakes. What is this prize? Well, in some ways, it doesn't matter. You know how worthwhile the prize is because of what people are willing to risk and sacrifice for it. In other ways, all that sacrifice and risk is rendered silly without a worthwhile prize at the end, and vice versa. There's no specific formula for what makes a good setup and payoff, but if you're not writing a straight-up comedy, the setup and payoff have to be even and commensurate with one another. I open this book with a setup because our instinct upon seeing a good setup is to desire the payoff. It's so instinctual that we're angry with reality when it doesn't play by the same rules. Some nobody kills JFK for no reason? That can't be true. It must have been redacted. COVID-19 emerges due to a long series of mistakes and blunders in the environment. No way, wake up, sheeple. You're being deliberately poisoned and manipulated. And people will be angry at you, yes, you, JJ, if you set up something without considering the payoff. All right, here's the opening of Run Prometheus. Gary Kasparov versus Deep Blue. The world's best chess player beaten eight kinds of silly in front of a live audience by IBM's chess-playing computer. At least, that's the story I was told. So began the story of Annabelle Eichner. At least, that's the story I've always told. In reality, every word of that sentence could be approached with a skeptical eye given the events it describes. And here's how it ends. Or maybe it's all fiction. Please do note I said every word could be approached with a skeptical eye. I don't say that it should. If there really is an inconceivable power outside of humanity, and I think it'd be pretty stupid to assume that we're the highest form of being in the universe seeing all that I've seen. If that power exists, we've got two options, so far as I see it. Option number one is that this power has our best interests at heart, and option number two is that we're already doomed. You, I leave, to doubt or believe. All right, so we got two statements about uh, how you can doubt what you hear, and the one at the beginning and the one at the ending are pretty different. So we've talked about how opening lines set the tone for your writing, and if that's so, why are we talking about endings? Any good beginning makes a promise. That ending sees the promise fulfilled. In the beginning is your good first impression. The ending is the note on which your reader closes the book, either satisfied or infuriated. Keep your promises. If you aren't careful, the beginning will take you places that your ending can't keep you. J.J. In the novel Run Prometheus, the first line set up a question. Should you, the reader, believe anything the book is about to tell you? That is, can we really trust anything given the fact that there's an all-powerful computer running around in the book? The question is restated by the end. But by the end of the book, we've got the context of the second through penultimate pages to help give us an answer. Should we believe or doubt? And is it possible, having read the ending that the beginning might be asking a different question than we thought it was. All right, then here's the last one uh, of my books. 
Ironclad Nocturne. It doesn't fully wrap up its story by the end. Uh, so why is it a part of my series on beginnings and endings? Well, is any story really over? Is any story really the beginning and ending of everything? Nothing should be superfluous in your novel. It should begin right when it's meant to and end right when it's over. Well, what's that mean? Get into your story, not at the beginning of time or at the beginning of the day, but at the beginning of the moment that is indispensable for your story. That doesn't mean that nothing important happened before you start the story. However, everything before your beginning isn't immediate to the present action making up your narrative. All right, describe the story like a five-year-old might. Here's how, here's how they would do it. I just read Ironclad Nocturne. So there's this girl, and she hears her friend scream, and the girl's smart, so she knows the bad stuff just happens sometimes. So you're scared and careful, but she's an ironclad, and I'll tell you about that later. So that means she knows how bad things can get, but she has to go on anyway, and... All right, all right, so tell your story like a five-year-old. Get to the action as soon as possible. Get to the plotting and exhaustive background when you need to clarify and contextualize the good stuff. All right, so taking that five-year-old's advice, here's how I started. Ironclad Nocturne. From down the dark and empty hall, Tora heard a muffled scream from Rosie's room. Too late then, but that was the way of things. Tora padded barefoot to the threshold of Rosie's door. Every instinct screamed for her to rush in, but there was no telling the nature of the horror on Rosie's lips. Tora stilled her breath and listened. Though cloaked in silence, she heard nothing but the cannonade of her own heartbeat. The lack of noise, after all, did not imply a lack of danger. Death by ironclad could come silent as the grave. Alright, that's the beginning. But it's just as important that once the action of the novel is over, you linger for like three seconds to let people know how life will go on after this. Then just get out before you overstay your welcome. Imply the happily ever after, or they lead a bunch more adventures together, or they face a hard road ahead, and then just leave the exact details of that to a reader's imagination. Alright, see if you can tell why I ended my novel that is more of like the first installment of a novel. Anyway, see if you can figure out why I ended it here. Tora turned on her floodlight. Before the light, there'd been nothing. Now light sprang into the darkness, filling the room with life and sensation. Power, Tora said. The power of armies and governments, the power of fortunes, the power of the world machine. At your fingertips, power and all the good gained by power. We're the ones who get the power this time, not Congress, church, or crown, but us. Tora felt the group turning. If she got them now, she'd have them for good. She looked at her ironclad hands. She let herself think of Sue, of Kim, Jun, and Yejun. There was no more need to lie, no temptation to mask, artifice, or intrigue. She had only to let herself feel, and a little voice inside told her what to say. We can make things our own way, she said, or we can keep being machine gears. Tora looked up. At a glance, she knew they were hers. All right, so for Ironclad Nocturne, I focused up on exactly one story, the story of Tora going from point A to point B. At point A, she's a person who goes along with the way of things and accepts her place in the world. At point B, 
She's been so rocked by the events of the story that she wants to be in control of the world and wants to change the way of things. We know that life exists before and after the story, but focus up. This novel is the beginning of a story that will go from point A to B, and then to C, and then to D, but there's a full story from A to B that needs to be told. If you want to do a prequel, the sequel, fine, but your A to B story needs to stand as a story all its own. So these are some of my examples. Now here is one, a little bonus example, from another author, Amy Green, who I will be interviewing next week. Her excellent forthcoming novel, Things We Didn't Say, begins with these words, and you can see she's taken my advice to heart without even me having to tell it to her. That's how good my advice is. It travels backwards through time. From Joanna Berglund to Charles Donahue, Attorney at Law, January 26th, 1945. Dear Mr. Donahue, if I were an expert in criminal law, I'd be sick to death of outraged clients claiming to be falsely accused, and especially of weepy female clients wringing their hands and saying things like, oh, how could it have come to this? Which is why I deliberately avoided any of that in our initial meeting, though it occurred to me later that I might have come across as cold or detached. So allow me to say thank you for agreeing to take my case. I'm aware that representing a civilian charged with involvement in prisoner-of-war-related crimes is a complicated affair. The following file contains all the documents I have gathered related to the incidents at Camp Ironside this past year, arranged by date received. I wasn't sure what would be of use, so I've sent everything, including some information that might, at first glance, seem incriminating. Don't you want to read that book? Right now? You know from the start that the story is going to lead somewhere thrilling. No matter what you read from here on out, you know it's all relevant to some controversy or trial. There's a ticking time bomb beneath the character's feet this whole time, and you, dear reader, are the only one who can see it. I'll give you a peek behind the curtain. I've read Things We Didn't Say, and it's breathtaking. I've interviewed the author, and the interview also takes breath. So if you want to hear me talk shop with Amy Green, tune in next week and be prepared to pre-order her seriously great book. All right. To my listener who keeps asking me to make these episodes longer, uh, I hope you I hope you're happy. But in all seriousness, uh, thanks for hanging out with me for like almost half an hour. Um, if you do this regularly, if you're one of my awesome listeners, I just can't thank you enough for hanging out. I know that there's a lot you could be doing right now. Well, honestly, if it's 2020, there's not a lot you could be doing right now. But you're listening to this program. You're trying to get better. That's awesome. I like you. Uh, that said, man, I also really like uh, the people who have uh, rated my show on iTunes. And this has always been a little pathetic, but I really think this show has the potential to be really cool for a lot of people. And we're closing in on 3,000 downloads. Like I said, this is great. But I wouldn't be doing the show and putting the work into it if I didn't think it was worth something. And if you think it's worth something, if it's been worth something to you, or if it might be worth something to a friend of yours who's looking to write or looking to, uh, you know, improve their writing, just uh, I would love if you could send it to them, get other people involved. And uh, the reason I ask that is that this has the potential to grow exponentially, you know? 
I mean, if every listener were to share with two people and those two people were to share with two people soon, we would have a billion, billion people. We would run out of people listening to this podcast. So what I'm saying is if you're one of the like 100 people who regularly tunes in, it would mean a heck of a lot to me if you could reach out personally and share this with people. Because I don't know if you checked your calendar recently, but 2020 is, is the ending is coming up and uh, 2021 comes after that. And what I would love to do is to continue doing this show um, regarding revision processes, taking the things that I've written and turning them into really good books that we can give to people. Writing is rewriting, and if you want to see these drafts get way better, and if you wanted me to continue doing the show in 2021 and perhaps beyond, who knows? It would help so much if the show was a little bit bigger, and that's all I have to say about that. So, again, thank you. Because remember what I said about getting out while the getting is good? Well, that happened, like, a few minutes ago, and here we still are, doing the epilogue, the postscript. I am postscript. There's no script for this. I'm just saying whatever comes to the top of my head.